Welcome to Tech News of the Week with your host, that guy in front of you who does one mile per hour below the speed limit. Hello and welcome to Twisted Newts on the Windshield. I'm Ned. With me is Chris. This is our weekly tech news podcast that now comes out on Tuesdays. Hey, we changed the day on you. How about that? Very exciting stuff. We've got four interesting news articles that we've stumbled across on the internet. And we're going to start with me because I am clearly more important and more handsome as far as you know. Quantum modular computing from IBM. A modular quantum computer? Well, that's a bit redundant, isn't it? You know, because like a quantum is a discrete unit of something and so is modular. Whatever. I'm smart. Anyway, IBM recently announced their new Heron quantum processor, which is part of a larger effort to build out their System 2 architecture. The Heron chip will contain 133 qubits, but more importantly, the System 2 architecture is designed to combine multiple Heron chips in a modular deployment that also includes other critical quantum computing components like classical computing servers and qubit control electronics. The first iteration of System 2 is running in their Yorktown Heights data center, with three Heron processors running in a cryogenically cooled facility. The published roadmap from IBM includes future processors like Flamingo and Kookaburra, which I find absolutely delightful. IBM, you did a fun thing! Look at you! System 2 is meant to accommodate these future processors and also allow for larger modular configurations. IBM also announced version 1.0 of the Quiskit development kit for quantum computing to help power these next-gen chips. They also threw in some Gen AI nonsense at the end because, of course, they did. Can't have a product announced in 2023 without saying generative AI at least 40 times. So previously awarded points for Kookaburra? Subtracted, IBM. If you'd like to try out the Heron processor yourself, IBM is making it available from their cloud services for the low, low price of $1.60 per Quiskit runtime second. Now, I've seen the documentary Quantum Mania, so I'm pretty sure that works out to $10,000 per second in real time, right? So you, you watched that on purpose? Oh, God, I couldn't make it through the first half. I stopped. I literally gave up and stopped watching. I was going to say, did you, did you lose a bet? I tried twice, Chris. I started it. Did somebody play this on your TV without your... <laughs> Quite possibly. I started it and like half an hour in, I was like, I got to go do something else for a while. And then I came back and I'm like, okay, we'll give this and another half an hour. I was like, no, this is just awful. Everything about this is awful. Anyway. Speaking of awful, <laughs> the 23andMe attack just went from bad to worse. Look. I know you are just as tired of getting updates from 23andMe as I am. I get it. I have more 23rd cousins twice removed this month. Again, can you shush about it for five seconds? <laughs> I don't even want to hang out with my direct family. Fair. Anyway, this update, much more unfortunate. In October, 23andMe disclosed that they had been hacked via credential stuffing and weak passwords. So basically, Weak, reused, already compromised passwords were used to gain access to user accounts, thereby user data. Mm -hmm. Through connections, because everything is connected by design, escalations could mean that around 7 million users' data, meaning profiles and family tree data, were compromised. 
Allegedly, all impacted customers were notified, and all 23andMe customers have to reset their password, and MFA is now enabled. And I just checked, and yes, they required me to put in a new password, and MFA was in fact enabled. Hmm. By default, and at the beginning, MFA was done via my connected email account. But they do have an app-based MFA setting you can enable from 23andMe's account settings, all of which is good. Forcing the entire customer base to change passwords is inconvenient, sure. But it definitely stops any future data losses from this breach in their tracks. In other news, apparently my new genetic trait update is that I'm, quote, less likely to be able to match a musical pitch. (laughs) Ouch. Which is one, bad, and two, totally explains my, shall we say, uneven karaoke performance last month. And here I thought the audience was crying tears of joy. Well, they were definitely crying. Amazon Q is like, it's pretty bad. Like, I, I don't want to belabor the point. He says before belaboring the point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> let me be clear. I'm going to belabor the point. <laughs> but if you want to read an absolutely vicious and accurate takedown of Amazon Q, go ahead and check out Corey Quinn's post that we have linked in the show notes. He helpfully notes that Amazon Q has been integrated into pretty much everything, gives bad and often wrong answers, and is outperformed by ChatGPT. And this serves to illustrate just how much Amazon has dropped the ball on generative AI. But you know what? I didn't want to just take his word for it. So I spun up Amazon Q in the AWS console, and I asked it a few questions. First up, how many NAT gateways should I have in a VPC with two public subnets? The correct answer is, it depends, but probably two. Q's answer? It assumed I was having network connectivity problems and pointed me at the network connectivity analyzer. That's, um, wrong. Next, I asked how many root users I should have on an AWS account. It correctly answered that you can only have one root user and that you shouldn't use it aside from initial setup tasks. So one in its favor. Lastly, I asked it, how can I connect my VPC to an Azure virtual network? To which it said, sorry, I can't answer that question. Once again, reinforcing AWS's grand tradition of pretending other cloud providers just don't exist. So I guess that's correct from a certain point of view. No, I'm still not giving it to them. I asked the same set of questions to ChatGPT, and it fucking nailed all three of these questions. It even gave me step-by-step directions for creating VPN gateways on AWS and Azure to connect the two, and it provided guidance on when to choose a NAT instance over a NAT gateway on AWS. I get that Q is still in preview and all, but there is just no contest between the two. There's more to the story involving possible data leakage, and maybe we'll expand on that next week. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean, know what I mean, say no more. It's not funny unless you do it in a British accent. Have you heard my British accent? You just did! It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Advertising company Google announces AI-powered upgrade to Gmail's spam filters. Hmm. So here's a weird dichotomy. On the one hand, Google has a well-earned reputation for proudly serving ads online that lead to users falling for scams and malware infections. On the other hand, Gmail has, for decades at this point, had a reputation for doing a borderline amazing job killing spam. In fact, the spam filtering they had from the get-go 
is probably one major reason a lot of people got and still use a Gmail account. Mm. Obviously, it's always a cat and mouse game with spammers. Google's latest feature purports to keep up with one of the dumbest slash cleverest ways spammers evade scans. Using Unicode lookalike characters so a text scan doesn't see a complete word. So what does this mean? Well, in the olden days, we would have called it something like leet speak, where you would replace an I with a one mm-hmm. or an O with a zero, an A with a four, etc. But Unicode enables you to take this a step further and use things like mathematical bold capital C, <laughs> which looks damn near identical to the regular ASCII letter C. The new Google service is an obvious backronym, and thus I hate it. It's called RETVEC, which stands for Resilient and Efficient Text Vectorizer. Yep, there we are. And the idea behind the service is that it shouldn't matter what coding is used to make the string of letters. RETVEC interprets the actual meaning based on what the letters look like. Mm-hmm. rather than simply looking at the ASCII code or the Unicode code. It is way more complicated than just a blacklist or lookup table. And it is done via AI, so it will adapt as people continue to mark messages as spam or phishing. So Retvec, stupid name, interesting idea that should work better than some suggested absolutes like, quote, disallow Unicode altogether in emails, Mm. which is wrong for so many reasons. I don't even have time to get into them all right now. Yes, I agree with that. But blocking all emojis, I'm strangely okay with. (laughs) All right. That's it for today. Bye. Sad emoji. (laughs) 